0: Hey guys, are you thinking about starting your own podcast? If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me give you the details. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello, and welcome back to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, joined by my co-host, Winston the Cat. Every other week, Winston and I will bring you a new story about a murder, disappearance, or a serial killer with a special focus on cases from our hometown, the Pacific Northwest. Just a reminder, this podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. I've been interested in true crime for almost 20 years. Today's episode discusses the intersection of true crime and my other longtime interest, football. I've been a huge fan of the New England Patriots since around 2011, but don't hold it against me. All kidding aside, the man I'll be discussing in today's episode should have had it all. He was a beloved high school athlete and was drafted by the Green Bay Packers in 1974. So how did Randy Woodfield go from the star of his coastal Oregon town to the suspect in multiple robberies, sexual assaults, and murders? Join Winston and I as we dive into the story of Randall Woodfield, the I-5 killer. Researching Woodfield's childhood, it's hard to understand how he went on to become such a disturbed individual. Woodfield was born on December 26, 1950, in Salem, Oregon. He was the baby of his family, the only son, and had two older sisters. His father worked for Pacific Northwest Bell as a manager while his mother stayed at home with the children. The Woodfield family lived in Otter Rock, about eight miles north of Newport on the Oregon coast. Woodfield's father thought his son should be a quote unquote man's man, so he pushed Woodfield into every sport possible football, basketball, track. By all accounts, Woodfield was the all-American boy. His sisters doted on him as a baby. He was like a real-life doll to play with. But eventually, as they grew up, Woodfield began to resent his sisters. They were older, and they had more freedom, and they certainly didn't need a babysitter to watch them. Even though there was the general sibling rivalry typical of most families, Woodfield was a fairly good student. He had good grades, he was popular, and he went on to become a star athlete in track, baseball, basketball, and of course, football. The Woodfields were pillars of the Otter Rock community, well-respected and well-known. Despite all of the things Woodfield had had going for him, Woodfield began exposing himself in junior high. He flashed dozens of young girls and women. Woodfield was thrilled by the looks on their faces. Now, Otter Rock is a small coastal town. Everyone pretty much knows everybody else, and it wasn't long before Woodfield was caught for exposing himself to a bunch of girls on a bridge. Here's the problem. He didn't really receive any consequences, either in the form of punishment or treatment. Clearly, there was something going on underneath the surface, but everyone brushed this exhibitionist behavior under the rug. On top of that, His juvenile record was expunged when he turned 18, so Woodfield's sexual deviance would stay a secret to outsiders. As I mentioned before, Woodfield was a star football player at Newport High School. He graduated in 1969 and worked for the same company as his father in the summer before he started college. In the fall of 1969, Woodfield enrolled at Treasure Valley Community College near the Idaho border on the complete opposite side of the state from his family in Otter Rock. Woodfield maintained a fairly average GPA of 2.5 and was on the varsity football and basketball teams. While he was at Treasure Valley, there were allegations that Woodfield broke into an ex-girlfriend's house and vandalized her room following their breakup. Police believe Woodfield entered the home through a bathroom window, and after he trashed the woman's room, he stole a stuffed bowl that he'd given to her as a gift. Woodfield was arrested and charged for this burglary. However, he was found not guilty by a jury because there was no physical evidence linking Woodfield to the theft and or vandalism. There were also several instances and allegations of indecent exposures on campus, though it doesn't appear that Woodfield was ever charged with any crimes related to these events. With his reputation essentially tarnished at this point, Woodfield decided to transfer to another school. In the spring of 1971, Woodfield enrolled as a transfer student at Portland State University, more commonly known as PSU. Woodfield was registered as a full-time student from the spring of 1971 through the winter of 1973. He majored in health and physical education and played wide receiver for PSU's Vikings football team, which isn't surprising given his reported athletic abilities and the fact that he was a quote-unquote sports hero back home in Rock and Newport. While he was taking classes, Woodfield also worked as a part-time cook and waiter at the Burger Chef restaurant on the PSU campus. And for some reason, he found religion during his transfer. Woodfield only dated quote-unquote Christian girls and was actively involved in the Campus Crusade for Christ group, but his exhibitionism continued. Woodfield's first arrest as an adult came in August of 1972 in Vancouver, Washington. Woodfield was charged and convicted of indecent exposure, but of course, he received a suspended sentence and didn't serve any prison time. Somehow, Woodfield managed to contain himself for almost an entire year, or, more likely, he just didn't get caught. Either way, on June 22, 1973, Woodfield was arrested and charged with indecent exposure, resisting an officer, and attempting to elude arrest. The resisting charge was eventually dropped, and Woodfield was sentenced to five months, 25 days in jail, as well as one year probation. But again, he never served any jail time. It wasn't clear to me from my research what exactly Woodfield did from June 1973 to February 1974, other than possibly working at Tektronix, a tech company in Beaverton, Oregon. Interestingly, Woodfield regularly reported to his probation officer during this time. On February 20th, 1974, Woodfield signed a contract with the Green Bay Packers. He was supposed to earn $16,000 from the date of signing until the 1st of May after the end of the 1974 season, plus room and boarding, travel expenses for the preseason and regular season, and a $3,000 bonus. If Woodfield became an official Green Bay Packer, meaning if he was selected as a member of their roster for the 1974 season, Woodfield would receive an additional $2,500. And because Woodfield was a wide receiver, he would also be eligible for additional bonuses depending on the number of passes he caught in the regular season, up to $3,000. The contract terms also stated that Woodfield had to be in, quote, excellent physical condition, end quote. He couldn't drink or gamble, and he was required to wear a coat and necktie whenever he was in, quote, Hotel lobbies, public eating places, and all public conveyances. End quote. The only thing missing from his contract was a morality clause. So it should come as no surprise that Woodfield was arrested for public indecency just two days after signing his contract with the Packers. Woodfield was sentenced to three years probation. He was also supposed to attend mandatory counseling as part of the terms of his probation but no one ever made Woodfield follow up on this. So his sexual deviancy continued to go unchecked and untreated. Woodfield managed to keep himself busy during the spring and summer of 1974. His life was, quote, all football, end quote. But he was cut from the traveling squad before the 1974 season began. There was no official reason given by the Packers but there were rumors of 10 to 20 indecent exposure incidents in the Wisconsin area around the same time. Woodfield decided to stay in Wisconsin and played for the Manitowoc Chiefs from September 1974 through December 1974. Woodfield ultimately hated the weather in Wisconsin and decided to move back to Portland. At this point, Woodfield was 25 years old, depressed and extremely worried that he had disappointed his mother. In the span of nine months, Woodfield had gone from a potential NFL player to working at an electronics firm and then a part-time bartender. Despite his initial struggles after moving back home, Woodfield stayed on his best behavior until the beginning of 1975. Police began receiving reports of women being threatened at Knife Point in the southwest Portland area. These women told police that a man exposed himself, then forced them to perform oral sex on him before stealing their purses. Police decided in order to catch the perpetrator, they would set up a decoy. In March 1975, the decoy was sent out to the southwest Portland area, where she was accosted by Woodfield. He held a paring knife against her neck while he fondled her breasts. Woodfield was arrested and charged with first degree robbery, but later pled guilty to second degree robbery. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but only served four years. While he was in prison, Woodfield was examined by a psychiatrist who felt Woodfield was, quote, too dangerous, end quote, to be let out of prison, but also felt it was unlikely that he would be effectively treated for his sexual deviancy while he was in prison. In other words, there wasn't a lot of hope for Woodfield. Because he wasn't convicted of any sexual crimes, Woodfield was housed in the general population of the prison. He took college courses at a local community college, and he worked in the kitchen and dining area. I didn't find any reports of fights or other issues or infractions while Woodfield was in prison. But this is where his issues with women really progressed. He later explained that he resented the female guards for working in a male prison. Woodfield was paroled in July 1979. Right after his release, Woodfield attended his 10-year high school reunion on August 25, 1979. He was actually part of the planning committee for the reunion while he was still in prison. Woodfield temporarily lived with his parents, then his sister Nancy, until he was able to earn his own income. Woodfield went back to his tectronics job for a little while before eventually leaving to bartend. Once again, there was a brief period where Woodfield had his urges under control. But by late 1980, Woodfield would embark on a five-month-long crime spree up and down the I-5 corridor from northern California to Washington. It all started on October ninth, 1980, with the murder of Sherry Ayers. Sherry was found dead by her fiancé. She had been raped, bludgeoned, and stabbed numerous times in the neck. Sherry was a former high school classmate of Woodfield's who wrote to him while he was in prison. Not only that, Sherry and Woodfield were on the planning committee for their 10-year class reunion. Woodfield was questioned and detectives felt he was evasive and deceptive, and this was before Woodfield refused to take a polygraph test. He was eventually eliminated as a suspect because there was never enough physical evidence to charge him with anything. Remember, probable cause to arrest someone is very different than proving someone is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Despite the lack of evidence, Sherry's family has always considered Woodfield a person of interest in her rape and murder. The next alleged crime in his spree was the murder of Darcy Fix and Doug Altig on November 27, 1980. Darcy was a former classmate from Portland State University, and she was the ex-girlfriend of Woodfield's best friend and former roommate, Tim Rossi. A gun was taken from the crime scene, a 32 caliber chrome revolver to be exact. This was an old gun that Darcy's father had given her that hadn't been registered due to its age. While investigators theorized that Darcy and Doug were murdered by Woodfield as some sort of avengement for Darcy breaking up with Tim, their murders remain unsolved and the 32 caliber chrome revolver has never been found. Again, Woodfield has been linked to these murders based on theory and speculation, but there was no physical evidence to charge Woodfield with their murders. Still, it's a big coincidence that Darcy and Sherry, who both knew Woodfield, would be the victims of random homicides. Woodfield's alleged crimes weren't limited to rape and murder. On December 9, 1980, a cashier at an Arco gas station in Vancouver, Washington, was robbed at gunpoint. The assailant, believed to be Woodfield, wore a fake beard and a strip of athletic tape over the bridge of his nose. Less than a week later, in Eugene, Oregon, which is about two hours south of Vancouver, A man wearing a fake beard and a Band-Aid across his nose robbed a Baskin and Robbins ice cream shop using a silver pistol. The next day, a fast food restaurant in Albany, Oregon was robbed, again with a silver pistol. The assailant took $280 in cash, which is the equivalent of about $950 today. The crime spree not only continued a week later, it also escalated. On December 21st, Kim Meehan was working as a waitress at a church's fried chicken restaurant in the Seattle, Washington area. Just for reference, Seattle is about four hours north of Albany. A man, again believed to be Woodfield, came into the restaurant and forced Kim into the bathroom at gunpoint, where he then pulled up her shirt and bra and fondled her breasts. The man then forced Kim to give him a hand job, which she did, and he ejaculated on her breasts. The man told Kim to count to 100, and then he left. Kim immediately called for help and reported the crime. Later that same night, a Baskin and Robbins ice cream shop in Bothell, Washington, was robbed around closing. The man took over $500 before telling the two girls working there to sit on the floor, count to 50, and look the other way while he left. All of the robberies, murders, and sexual assaults I just told you about are all believed to have been committed by Woodfield. However, he has never been officially charged with anything related to those crimes. The important takeaways from these crimes is Woodfield's apparent victim profile and modus operandi, better known as his M.O. Woodfield seemed to prefer petite Caucasian women in their teens or early 20s. As for his M.O., Woodfield used a 32 caliber gun in his robberies. He usually wore a fake beard, as well as athletic tape or a Band-Aid over the bridge of his nose and his robberies usually had some kind of sexual assault involved. Woodfield's alleged crime spree during the last three months of 1980 was just the beginning. January 1981 started off as his deadliest month thus far. On January 8th, Woodfield robbed the same Arco gas station in Vancouver that he hit on December 9th. There was a different cashier on duty but Woodfield used the same ruse. He had a small silver gun and took less than $100. He told the cashier to sit on the floor, take off her shirt, and lift her bra. Woodfield had her count slowly to 50, and then he left. A few days later, Woodfield robbed a grocery cart market in Eugene, Oregon. He only managed to walk away with $35. The next day, Woodfield hit the Central Market restaurant in Sutherland, Oregon, which is about an hour south of Eugene. Susie Bennett, the cook, was working alone when Woodfield came in. He reached across the counter, grabbing Susie by her shirt. He then shot Susie in the right shoulder before telling her to get on the floor while he took $300 from the cash register. As soon as Woodfield took off, Susie called 911. She had a through and through wound in her right shoulder with the bullet exiting in her back. If the bullet had exited a few inches lower, it would have pierced Susie's lung. But Woodfield didn't stop there. Two days later, he headed back up to Corvallis, about an hour and a half north from Sutherland. This crime was more sinister in nature than the others. Mary Sue and Megan Green sisters ages 8 and 10, were home alone while their mother went to run some errands. She left at 5.30 p.m. and was supposed to be back at 6.15, just 45 minutes. But these would undoubtedly be the longest 45 minutes of Mary Sue and Megan's young lives. After their mother left, Woodfield knocked on the front door. He told them his car had broken down, and he needed to use their phone to call for help. This was before the age of cell phones, so it was the perfect ruse for Woodfield to use. The girls told Woodfield to get lost. Their mom had told them not to let anyone in the home when she wasn't there. Unfortunately, Woodfield wasn't going to take no for an answer. He burst into the house, again demanding to use the phone. These poor young girls had no idea what to do, so they let Woodfield use the phone, but explained that he would need to leave after that. Woodfield pretended to call his friend to come and pick him up, and then asked the girls if he could watch TV with them until his friend came to get him. When the girls protested to Woodfield staying, he pulled out a gun and told them both to take their clothes off. I wanna add an extra trigger warning here as I'm gonna discuss sexual assault involving children. Feel free to skip ahead about 30 seconds. Woodfield then fondled Mary Sue's breasts and molested Megan. He forced both girls to perform oral sex on him and then forced Mary Sue to swallow when he ejaculated in her mouth. After he was done sexually assaulting them, Woodfield told them to get dressed and stay in the bathroom until he left. I can't imagine what Mary Sue and Megan were thinking and feeling as they agonized over when their mother would be home. Around 6.10 p.m., the girl's mother came home to find both of them extremely upset and crying. She immediately took Mary Sue and Megan over to a neighbor's house and called the police. It should be noted that during this period, Woodfield really didn't have any steady employment. His primary source of income seemed to be his unemployment checks. So not only did he have plenty of free time to drive up and down the I-5 corridor committing crimes, he also had the means, by virtue of his gold VW Bug. I also saw it described as champagne-colored, but either way, Woodfield was essentially free to do as he pleased because he wasn't tied down to a job and he had a means of transportation. Woodfield took a short break from his criminal activity, but was right back at it on January 18, 1981. That night, two unsuspecting women, Sherry Hull and Beth Wilmot, both 20, were working their cleaning job at the Trans-American Building in the Salem-Kaiser area. Sherry and Beth had become best friends after Beth moved to Salem from Spokane, Washington. They both worked for Sherry's dad's janitorial company. Which is why they found themselves in the Transamerica building and how they became the unfortunate victims of Randy Woodfield. Woodfield entered the building and immediately began his assault on the women. He exposed himself to Beth and Sherry before taking them to a secluded room and demanding they perform oral sex on him. Sherry was crying and screaming the whole time. Unfortunately, this only served to make Woodfield angry. He tried to penetrate Beth, but couldn't, which only made him more angry. Finally, Woodfield had had enough, and he fired at point-blank range, shooting both women in the head. He left both women naked and bleeding, but unbeknownst to Woodfield, he hadn't killed them both. Beth had been shot twice in the head, but neither shot actually penetrated her skull. She was able to crawl to a phone and call for help. Sherry had also been shot several times, on the left side of her neck, the right side of her skull, three inches above her ear, and the back of her head. Sherry never regained consciousness and was pronounced dead in the emergency room. When Beth arrived at the hospital, she had a black eye, the right side of her face was completely swollen and bruised, and she was bleeding from her head near her right ear. Beth told police that she wasn't raped by Woodfield, but semen was found in her throat. Since this was 1980, DNA testing hadn't really begun to take shape, but the semen sample was saved in case it could be used in the future. A day later, a skating rink in Vancouver, Washington was robbed. The assailant demanded money from the cashier, all while in the presence of three customers. It's easy to look at these crimes now, with the benefit of hindsight, and see how they were all connected. But in the early 80s, police departments just didn't communicate with one another, so it took several more robberies and assaults before they would come to realize the connection. On January 26th, Woodfield allegedly robbed a Dairy Mart in Eugene and then a Winchell's Donut Shop in Grants Pass on January 29th. He also fondled the clerk and customer at the Donut Shop. Based on everything I read about Woodfield, it seemed like all of these robberies, assaults, and murders were for the thrill or a lack of impulse control. They certainly weren't well thought out or meticulously planned, as he left many victims and witnesses alive to tell their stories to police. He couldn't have foreseen what would happen with DNA advancements, but his crime scenes were sloppy and didn't seem to indicate that Woodfield was some kind of criminal mastermind. The murder of Sherry and attempted murder of Beth really hit the Marion County community hard. Investigators and the district attorney at the time, Chris Van Dyke, were determined to find their perpetrator. Just as an aside, Chris Van Dyke is actually the son of famous actor and comedian Dick Van Dyke. Detectives released a sketch of their suspect and received 200 calls per day after the sketch was released. On February 3rd, 1981, detectives made the decision to put out a request to other police entities to see if they had any information on similar crimes along the West Coast, and they never could have imagined what exactly they'd stumble upon by doing this. Meanwhile, on the same day, in Redding, California, 46-year-old Maurice Sloan and 18-year-old Leah Morris were working at a Burger Express restaurant when a man came in demanding all the money in the cash register. But of course, that wasn't the only thing he wanted. He took the women to the back bathroom, where he made both women undress before sexually assaulting them. Marie's husband actually showed up at the restaurant to check on her, and Woodfield ended up locking him in the bathroom with the two women. Woodfield allegedly drove an hour and a half north to Huayrica, California, where he abducted 21-year-old Jesse Clovis at gunpoint. She had stopped to buy cigarettes when Woodfield pulled a gun on her and made her move over to the passenger side of the car. He drove while he forced Jessie to perform oral sex on him several times. He fondled her breasts, made her undress, and tried to anally rape her. Woodfield allegedly taped her wrists together and wiped down the car to get rid of any fingerprints. He left Jessie naked and bound in her car after returning to the location where he abducted her. After Woodfield left, Jesse immediately called the police. But Woodfield wasn't done for the night. He headed back down I-5, going south toward Reading. He stopped in the town of Mountain Gate, just shy of Reading. There, Woodfield came across Donna Eckard and her 14-year-old daughter, Janelle Jarvis. Donna worked as a registered nurse while her husband was a firefighter. He was working a shift that night and Donna's younger daughter Kristen, who was only 12, had gone to a friend's house. Kristen spoke to Donna around 6:30 p.m. and let her know when she'd be home. Kristen later told police everything seemed fine when they spoke, though she did mention that Donna sounded tired. Nothing could have prepared 12-year-old Kristen for the terrible scene she found when she came home that night. Kristen got home around 9 p.m. She found her mother and sister laying side by side on Donna's bed. Donna was on her back with her nightgown pulled down, exposing her breasts. Her ankles and wrists were bound with white surgical tape. The same tape used was used to cover Donna's mouth and nose. Janelle was completely naked and her face was covered in blood. Both Janelle and Donna had been shot in the head with a thirty two caliber weapon. Janelle seven times and Donna twice. There were signs that Janelle had been anally sodomized after her death, but no signs of sexual assault to Donna. The murders of Janelle and Donna served as the catalyst for the various police departments along the West Coast to band together and create a task force to track down their assailant. When they were tested, the bullets taken from Donna and Janelle matched those taken from Sherry and Beth in Salem, Oregon. Even though they could tie these crimes together, and they were beginning to link the other robberies and sexual assaults to one another, they still had no idea who their perpetrator was. On February 9th, Woodfield moved back up to Corvallis to commit his next alleged crime. Woodfield allegedly robbed a fabric store before forcing the female clerk and customer into a back room where he bound their hands and ankles with surgical tape. He taped their mouths shut before fondling the clerk and masturbating against her face. That same night, Woodfield allegedly bound and sodomized two young women at a laundromat in Albany. As investigators continued to work on solving the now-dubbed I-5 killer case, Woodfield continued his alleged criminal mayhem. He robbed a sassy dress shop in Vancouver, Washington, where he also tied up the elderly employee who was working. He then moved up north to Olympia, where he forced two teenagers into the freezer of the drive through restaurant they worked at. He sexually assaulted them, stole the money from the cash register, and left, leaving the teens locked in the freezer. Woodfield then moved on to Bellevue, just outside Seattle, where he robbed a Dairy Queen and locked the employee in the freezer before he left. Apparently unaware that police were beginning to connect the dots and could be closing in on him at any time, Woodfield forged on. On February 15, 1981, 18-year-old Julie Reitz was found dead in the home she shared with her mother and roommate. Julie's mother found her nude body on the stairs of their townhome. Her mother initially thought it was an accident, that Julie had just fallen down the stairs but EMTs found a gunshot wound in Julie's head. There were no signs of a struggle, and police hypothesized that Julie was likely running down the stairs to try and escape her killer when he shot her in the back of the head. Julie had graduated from high school just one month before her murder. As investigators reviewed the crime scene evidence and delved into Julie's life further, they found out she had gone to several parties the night before her death. party goers were all questioned but none of them identified any arguments or altercations at the parties. Several men Julie knew were given polygraph tests and they all passed which led investigators to rule them out. A 38 caliber bullet was removed from Julie's head and semen was found on her sheets. This semen could lead to their killer but it could also be a red herring and completely unrelated. Julie's time of death was estimated to be between 3 and 4 in the morning on February 15th. Neither Julie's mother or her roommate were home on February 14th, going into the early morning hours of February 15th. Julie's mother and roommate confirmed what police already suspected. Julie likely knew her killer. Given the time of death and the fact that she was alone, it was unlikely Julie would have let a stranger in. Police hoped this information would lead them right to the killer. Woodfield returned to Eugene on February 18th, where he robbed a 7-Eleven convenience store before tying up the clerk and leaving him in the back room. There were no usable prints found at the scene, and there was nothing useful on the security camera footage. Three days later, Woodfield was still in Eugene, where he allegedly attempted to rob a Taco Time restaurant. One of the employees was able to get away and called for help, but of course, Woodfield was gone by the time police arrived. On February 25th, Woodfield allegedly headed back to Corvallis, where he found 18-year-old Jill Martin at a restaurant. He forced his way into the bathroom with her and then forced her to perform oral sex on him before ejaculating in her mouth. He bound Jill with surgical tape and left her and his semen on the bathroom floor. After re-interviewing Julie Reitz's roommate, investigators learned about Randy Woodfield. On February 28th, they contacted Woodfield's parole officer. She told them about Woodfield's prior burglary charges and alleged sex crimes, and she told police that Woodfield was a suspect in three homicides in the Portland area, those of Sherry Ayers, Darcy Vicks, and Doug Altig. She made it clear that Woodfield was questioned about all three murders, but he was never charged with anything. Woodfield's parole officer told investigators he had moved to Eugene without permission from her or the court. In fact, the day before investigators contacted his parole officer, Woodfield had asked to have his case transferred to Eugene. Police decided to use this information to their advantage. They set up a meeting for Woodfield, his Portland and Eugene parole officers, and investigators for March 3rd. But if police thought they'd get Woodfield to cooperate easily, they were mistaken. Woodfield failed to show up to the meeting, which meant investigators had to go to his house to question him. At the time, Woodfield was renting a room from a woman and her son. Woodfield led investigators into the home, and they immediately began questioning him about Julie's murder. Woodfield claimed he didn't know Julie, that is, until police showed him her picture. Then he changed his story and told investigators that he only went out with her one time. He said they met when he worked at a bar called The Faucet. He claimed they never had sex, they were just friends, and he had only been to Julie's house once. Woodfield wavered between cooperation and non-cooperation with the police. He specifically told police, quote, I'd rather go back to the penitentiary before I'd agree to give a polygraph, Woodfield again changed his story later in the interview and told investigators that he actually did have sex with Julie, but he hadn't seen her for months. He consented to a search of the home, which allowed police to obtain a ton of evidence, more than they ever could have with a search warrant. They took a box of athletic tape, a receipt for the purchase of a 22 caliber handgun and a paper bag with a gun-cleaning kit inside. Despite the evidence collected and his conflicting statements, police had nothing solid to hold Woodfield on. They let him go and immediately set up surveillance. Investigators also interviewed Woodfield's landlord, Arden Bates. She didn't really have anything negative to say about Woodfield though she did let investigators know that Woodfield had charged lots of long-distance calls. She provided copies of her phone bills, and police advised her to stay anywhere other than her residence for the time being. When police reviewed the phone records from Miss Bates, they were able to match them to locations that were robbed between January 18th and February 4th. Based on this information, police decided they wanted to interview Woodfield again, On March 5th, they went to Arden Bates' home, where Woodfield was living, and again asked to speak with Woodfield. Woodfield led investigators on a tour of the home, telling them stories about his time with the Green Bay Packers as they passed his memorabilia. Despite his willingness to allow them to search the home, Woodfield refused to provide a hair sample and refused to take a polygraph test. It seemed like he finally knew his crime spree would be coming to an end. Police arrested Woodfield on a parole violation, advised him of his Miranda rights, and had him sign a Miranda card waiving those rights. Woodfield wasn't willing to give a blood sample once he was in custody, and he had an excuse for every question they asked. He admitted he knew Darcy and Sherry from college and high school. He told them he used the alcohol swabs from the gun cleaning kit to, quote, clean his face, end quote and he admitted to traveling frequently from late January through early February, including to San Francisco, Ashland, and Medford. But Woodfield adamantly denied being the I-5 killer. While detectives were interviewing Woodfield, an official search warrant was executed at the Bates' home in Springfield, Oregon. Police were specifically looking for a fake beard, white adhesive tape, a silver pistol, blue jeans, brown army boots, and a 38 Smith & Wesson. During the search, investigators seized pubic hair and a thirty-two caliber bullet. They matched the pubic hair to one found at the scene of Beth and Sherry's attack, and the thirty-two caliber bullet matched the type used to shoot Beth, Sherry, Donna, and Janelle. Investigators brought in Beth and some of the other victims for a photo array and a lineup. Beth wasn't able to confidently choose Woodfield out of the photo array, but several of the other victims were able to pick Woodfield as the perpetrator from that photo array. Other victims were also able to pick Woodfield out of the physical lineup, the vast majority in fact. A warrant was obtained for Woodfield's arrest in the murder of Sherry Hull, attempted murder of Beth Wilmot, and two counts of sodomy. On June 9, 1981, Woodfield's trial began. He had one of the best defense attorneys, Charlie Burt. This trial was the first murder trial of Chris Van Dyke's career as a prosecutor. It was poised to be a head-to-head battle. One of the prosecution's star witnesses was a friend of Woodfield's named Dixie, who testified that she bought a gun and bullets for Woodfield, as well as the fake beard and athletic tape used for his disguise. She also admitted to throwing a gun into the river after being instructed to do so by Woodfield. The other star witness was Beth Wilmot, the victim that Woodfield intended to kill but didn't. Beth testified for over two hours. When it came time to cross-examine her, the defense asked Beth all about her sex life, including whether she had contracted any sexually transmitted diseases. This is a standard line of questioning used by the defense, but we all know how irrelevant Bess's sexual history is during the trial of her rapist and would-be murderer. The defense's theory of the case was one of mistaken identity. They focused on the witness's discrepancies regarding the hair color of the perpetrator, explaining that the descriptions actually fit a different suspect altogether. To bolster this argument, the defense brought in a hair expert to challenge the validity of the hair sample testing and in what should come as no shock, Woodfield testified in his own defense. He only testified for 30 minutes, acknowledging his prior criminal history and telling the jury that he never wore band-aids over his nose. He also told them he did buy a gun, but then he threw it away because he wasn't supposed to have a gun while he was on parole, and he didn't want to go back to prison. The jury was sequestered during their three-and-a-half-hour deliberation, They returned a unanimous guilty verdict for the murder of Sherry Hull, the attempted murder of Beth Wilmot, and two counts of sodomy. The silver thirty-two that was used in most of the crimes Woodfield committed has never been found. Investigators did recover the gun that killed Julie. A young boy found it in a river near Springfield and turned it over to police. Investigators found out that the gun had been stolen from Donna Eckert's home. On August 28, 1981, Woodfield was charged with the murders of Donna Eckerd and Janelle Jarvis, as well as the sodomy of Janelle, three counts of burglary, and one count of rape. At his sentencing hearing on October 12, 1981, Woodfield continued to maintain his innocence. The judge was allowed to take four factors into consideration—separation, deterrence, retribution, and rehabilitation— when assessing these factors, the judge stated, quote, Frankly, I do not think that rehabilitation is very much in the picture within this sentencing, End quote. The prosecution had recommended a minimum of 50 years to be served before Woodfield would be eligible for parole. The judge handed down the maximum sentence of life in prison, plus an additional 90 years due to the dangerous offender enhancement these sentences would be served consecutively. A November trial date was set to try Woodfield for his crimes in Corvallis, including sodomy, kidnapping, attempted kidnapping, robbery, and sexual abuse. Woodfield was given a new defense attorney for this trial. Jill Martin was the prosecution's star witness. Not only had Jill ID'd Woodfield in a lineup, there was also a blood secretor expert, that testified that the semen found on the bathroom floor near Jill was likely a match to Woodfield. As I mentioned before, DNA testing wasn't really around at this time, but police did have some knowledge of different blood types and different secretor types. This seemed to be widely used or widely known around this time from everything I can tell. Miss Bates, Woodfield's former landlord, provided an alibi for Woodfield. Anne Rule, in her book on this case, suggested that Miss Bates felt guilty about the prior trial and how everything had turned out for Woodfield, so this was kind of her way of making things right, so to speak. But the jury didn't buy her alibi, and after three hours of deliberation, the jury found Woodfield guilty of sodomy and an ex-convict in possession of a weapon. Woodfield was sentenced to 30 years for the sodomy charge and five years on the weapons charge, a total of 35 years, to run consecutively with his prior sentence for a total of life plus 165 years. Woodfield filed his appeal related to the Marion County charges, however his appeal was denied. In July 1983, the Oregon Supreme Court declined to review Woodfield's final appeal, so his conviction and their sentences stand. Over the years, Woodfield has written to all kinds of women while in prison. In 1984, he wrote to Oregon's most infamous mommy murderer, Diane Downs. He started writing to her right before her own murder trial while she was pregnant. The two wrote to each other almost daily from May to July of 1984. They even talked about marriage proposals. But things eventually fizzled and they went their separate ways. I mean... It's hard to maintain a relationship when you and your beau are in prison for the rest of your lives. Prosecutors decided not to try Woodfield for his California crimes in September 1983. There were too many issues with various witnesses' testimonies and their likelihood of success. Not to mention, a trial of this magnitude would be expensive. They estimated a trial would cost two to three million dollars. Woodfield remains incarcerated at the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem, Oregon, with the likes of Christian Longo, Keith Hunter Jesperson, and Jerry Brudos before his death. His first parole hearing is set for 2031, at which time Woodfield will be 83. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com, and you can find us on Twitter at truecrimecatlaw and on Instagram at truecrimecatlawyer. You can also find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. If you're interested in learning more about my producer, you can check out her Instagram at Winston the cat PDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.